So let's open our Bibles to John 11. John 11, verses 45 through 57 is our text for tonight. This message is called The Polarizing Christ, because that's really what we see in this text and the response, the reaction to the awesome power of Christ and the raising of Lazarus. Now, interestingly, if you've been studying and been a good, diligent student of this gospel, and especially chapter 11 of John, you see that, interestingly, we don't get any details of what happens right after Lazarus is raised. Did you find that a little bit ironic and odd? Yeah? Okay. What did Lazarus say after he was raised from the dead? Right? Some of you came up to me after last Tuesday night. It's like, what, what, do you, what do you think happened? It's like, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, right? Later on, we know that Lazarus is with Jesus again a few days later. But what did he do after he was raised from the dead? Tell, tell, Lazarus. What was your experience like? We get no details. It's a bit excruciating, isn't it? And that's why I said last week that he's one of those characters that I actually want to talk to when I get to heaven and ask him, you know, I love to ask Lazarus, were you bummed that Jesus brought you back to life or what? Right? If he was a genuine follower of Jesus, right, Jesus is bringing him back to life. So no details. We're left to wonder a lot. But what we do get, brothers, in this particular text that we're going to look at tonight is the aftermath of the miracle. Notice the therefore in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, right? And we should always ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, it's, po it's pointing back to what just happened. Jesus has just performed this amazing miracle, and he did it in front of a, of a great audience of people. He did it in front of Mary. He did it in front of Martha. He did it in front of uh, the disciples who were there watching. He did it in front of a lot of people. A crowd was there of friends and family. This is a very prominent family. So they're all witnessing this miracle. And so what we have here in this particular passage, verses 45 through 57, is really a transitional passage. Next week in John chapter 12, we're going to see that Jesus will be prepared. He's going to be anointed for his death and for his burial. But here we have this transitional passage, which really gives us the, the takeaways from Jesus's miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's important, an important passage for us because here we see the, that, that what opposition and persecution looked like in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ as he heads to Calvary, as he continues to fulfill his mission of dying on the cross for sinners. And I think by way of implication for us, even today, we see what opposition and persecution looks like for us as we represent Jesus in this world and fulfill our mission, okay? And so the way that I want to approach this tonight is, you know, let's ask, answer the question, as we follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, what should we remember as we fulfill Jesus' mission amidst opposition and persecution that we also experience as followers of Christ? What should we remember? First of all, I want you to jot this down as we look at this text. We need to remember first that there are only two sides, right? We've seen this again and again throughout the Gospel of John, and I realize that this is sort of simplistic, but I think we often forget this. You know, I was talking to my sons recently just a, in a good father-son's conversation about the need to, to be solidified in our convictions as men, especially in the midst of a, such a hostile culture, Right? And so oftentimes we don't want to cause friction as Christian men in this hostile culture, but we need to forget, uh, not forget that no matter how you slice and dice it, men, 
If you're going to make a stand for Christ, you are going to basically be on one of two sides, right? People are either going to be on the side of Satan and following after the spiritual forces of this world, even if they wouldn't articulate it that way, or you're going to be on the side of Christ, right? That's why there is the, the narrow way and the broad way. There's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness, right? There, is a, there are spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And then there is the kingdom of light and Jesus being the light of the world. There are only two sides. And we see that this is, that's the case here in the response of the people to the healing of Lazarus. There is belief on the one hand. Look at verse 45. It says that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what Jesus did, believed in him. They believed in him. There is belief right? In the response of people. Remember, this is a Jewish funeral, at least a week of grieving or mourning on the part of many, honest mourning and even hired mourners or grievers, right? And sometimes it's even extended to a month of this funeral taking place. And for this particular family, the family of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, it's a, it's a prominent family in Bethany, there are large numbers of people, friends, family, hired mourners, as I said, who've come to pay their respects. And what John is telling us here is, is that upon seeing what Jesus did with Lazarus, raising him from the dead, there are those who believed literally into him, right? Now, in most cases we've seen in the Gospel of John, anytime that there's faith or belief mentioned, it doesn't mean that that is automatic saving faith. We've seen in the Gospel of John that sometimes that's superficial faith. Sometimes that is fickle faith on the part of people where they really don't believe in what Jesus, who Jesus claims and in the power of Christ uh, revealing who he really is as the eternal son of God. They really don't believe in him. They're just enamored by Jesus. But I think that it's safe to say that, that here these folks genuinely believed who witnessed this miracle here. And part of the reason I say this is because of the sharp contrast in the following verse, in verse 46. Notice that there is also unbelief in verse 46. If verse 45 is believers, right? Verse 46, but by contrast, verse 46, but contrast, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You have some of these people in here who do not believe in Jesus, who essentially go and they, they tatted tail on Jesus with the Pharisees. Do you know what Jesus did? What do you make of it? What are you guys going to do about it? We're really concerned about the implications uh, that this may have for our rights as Jews. These are tatted tales. These are spies in stark contrast to those of verse 45 who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe into him. And so notice, only there are only two sides as far as the reaction to Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead goes. No middle ground. John tells us that again and again and again throughout his gospel. There are only two sides. No neutral position. Jesus is a polarizing figure. And you can either believe in him or you reject his, his claims. And here you have some who hear the words of Jesus, see the sign of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They believe in him. Some, the opposite, continued in their unbelief, even became even more hostile. And they go to the religious leaders, speeding up the indictment of Jesus so that he is killed, right? And murdered. And men, if there were two sides then, it is the case even today, no matter what our culture has to say, right? 
If it was the case here in John's gospel that there are only two sides, it is the case even today. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. There's no being Mr. or Mrs. Nice Guy as Christians. And withholding the truth from people in love, in love I emphasize as well, right? Because of the fact that, well, you know, um, they, they, might, they, might, they might respond with hostility. They will respond with hostility, but make the truth be what polarizes people, right? As you speak the truth in love. And really the question that we should ask ourselves tonight is this. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Again, we don't want to read the Gospel of John as if it was some historical document written some 2,000 years ago that has no application for us. If there are two sides in the Gospel of John, and, and John the evangelist is emphasizing to us that those are the two sides, belief or unbelief, the question for us that, that the Gospel of John begs of each of us in every single narrative that we read and study is this, which side are you on? Which side are you on? If you were a person reading this letter... Sometime around 85 to 90 AD when it was penned by the evangelist John, the question that you would be asking yourself is, do I believe in Jesus' claims and works? Do I believe in this Jesus and what he says he came to do? Do I believe that he came into the world and took my sins upon himself and paid for my sins on the cross, that by believing in him, I may have life in his name? That's the question you'd be asking yourself if you were a first century reader, somewhere around 85 to 90 AD, reading the Gospel of John. And that is the exact same question, men, that we should be asking ourselves tonight. Which side are you on as you study the Gospel of John and you hear the claims of Christ and you see the things that he's, that he's doing, have you personally put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? And may I remind us tonight of the nature of this trust, of the nature of what it means to have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's simple trust. Yes, it's free salvation. Yes, it's simple belief. But it's far from superficial and it's far from fickle. Amen? Far from superficial and far from pickle. It's not an easy believism where you simply adhere to a certain set of intellectual facts about Jesus, and that is it. No heart transformation. It's not some empty profession devoid of heart affections where you now hate your sin and you now love the Lord Jesus Christ so that you want to obey him out of gratitude and love because he's gone to the cross to pay for your personal sins. It's not empty profession devoid of no heart affections, no hatred towards sin and love towards the Lord Jesus Christ and love towards people, right? It's not that. It's neither of those. Faith or belief is a, is a transfer of trust from yourself, your good works, any claims to any religiosity that may gain you favor before God, any personal grounds of boasting, right? It's tr a transfer of trust from self and anything that you can bring to the foot of the cross to instead transferring your trust to Jesus and to Jesus alone. His perfect life his death in your place, his just payment on the cross for your personal sins and personalize it, personalize it. I was the one that put Jesus on that cross. It was my sin that put him there, right? Not just the sins of the world, my personal sins. It's faith in Christ alone and mark it. The object of our faith is Jesus alone, right? 
People in the world say, well, you know, you just got to believe. What people need is more faith. You got to believe in yourself. In fact, have trust in your faith, right? What in the world does that mean? Seriously, what does that mean? Listen, salvation is not about believing in yourself. There's nothing that you can bring to the foot of the cross whereby you can get in favor before a holy and just God. Understand? Nothing to the cross I bring except what? My sin, right? My sin, not in part, but the whole. Empty hands of faith. So salvation is not about believing in, your, in yourself. In fact, Scripture says that we are spiritually bankrupt. That's what we are. That as you look at your, your, your spiritual account, figuratively speaking, that, that spiritual account, it's not just that you have zero. It's that you owe an infinite debt to a holy God and you can never pay it. The only one who is able to do that is who? The Lord Jesus Christ alone. So it's not faith. In yourself, it's not faith in your faith. What does that mean? That's so ambiguous, isn't it? It's not believing yourself. It's not faith in your faith. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. And so let us remember, brothers, as we carry out the Lord's mission, in the midst of a wicked and hostile culture, which Jesus faced as well himself in the first century, there are only two sides, two sides. sides. And as we witness for Christ, we need to, Share Christ with people understanding this. It doesn't mean that if you understand that there are only two sides, that you and I should not be gracious with the message of the gospel. Remember that we're not for God using somebody in your life to share the message of truth, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You wouldn't be here tonight, right? You wouldn't be here. So we don't come to people not, not being gracious, it doesn't mean that if we understand that there are only two sides, that our motive is to pick a fight with everybody that we share the gospel with, that we make ourselves the issue, that we unnecessarily offend people with the truth and say, well, they just didn't like the truth. Maybe they didn't like the way that you said that. You made yourself the issue, not the gospel message, right? Can I get an amen? Because a lot of times we can get very zealous about the truth and we should be zealous about the truth. But Jesus was full of grace and truth. Both love, grace, and truth. If we're going to be like Jesus, even in the way that we dispense the gospel message and we share the gospel with other people, we must be also men who are about grace and truth, brothers, working together, right? And therefore being like Christ. So we need to be mindful that ultimately all people fall under unbelief or belief, just like here in our text. Secondly, secondly, as we follow in the footsteps of our Lord, what should we expect as we fulfill Jesus' mission in the midst of opposition and persecution? Well, secondly, we should expect hostility against the gospel. Again, this is so, so clear-cut, isn't it? Especially for us as we're experiencing some of that. Some of you have shared that with me already. How in your, amongst family members and co-workers and people that you interact with and all of that, that there's so much hostility and so much opposition. Even when you're gracious, people still react, right, with hostility. Brother, keep being gracious. Keep being kind. But the reality of it is, is the gospel offends people. It offends people. You're calling people and telling them that they are sinners and that are, if they don't repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they are actually headed for hell. You think anybody's going to like that in their natural state? Uh-uh, you and I didn't, right? So we should expect hostility against the gospel. 
Know that hostility is what is at the heart of unbelief. It's hatred and hostility against the truth. Romans 1.30 says that the world is characterized by people who are haters of God. It's ultimately hatred and hostility directed at God that is at the heart of unbelief. And that's what we see here. These tattered tales having told on Jesus now leads to the wicked hostility against Jesus by the so-called spiritual leaders of the Jews. Look at verse 47. Look at this hostility. So the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, in response to those tattletales coming and talking to them about Jesus, gathered the council. That's a reference there to the official council of the Jewish Sanhedrin. They were the ruling body of the, of the Jews. Seventy members plus the, the current high priest, um, uh, basically leader over this Jewish Sanhedrin, comprised of 70 members, mostly Sadducees with some elite Pharisees sprinkled here and there. And normally these hypocrites, these Sadducees and, and Pharisees, didn't get along very well, did they? We see them in conflict with one another, even theologically in the Gospels. But here... They're perfectly okay getting together to get Jesus in trouble. They are more than happy to unite for the wicked, hostile cause of putting Jesus to death. And the current high priest is a guy by the name of Caiaphas. He presided over this 70-member Jewish Sanhedrin. And the guy wielded a lot of power as we're going to see. And so having heard the report from the people, the Sanhedrin doesn't know what to do with Jesus. So they said, look at verse 47, what are we to do? For this man, speaking of Jesus, performs many signs. They can't deny the signs, right? They are not debatable. On top of that, there are many witnesses, crowds of people, including their, their own spies who have come to tell on Jesus, who have witnessed the power of Christ. They could care less about all, all the evidence. They could care less about all of the witnesses though, right? Notice what their concerns are in verse 48. If we let him namely Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. You think that they care about the people? What do you guys think? No, they don't care about the people. It's our place, our nation, possessive uh, um, words, right? They're concerned about loss of control, loss of power, they could care less about, uh, less about the people. They're, they're concerned about their loss of privilege, the loss of their rights delegated to them by the Roman government. It's not about the good of the Jewish people. It's about our place and our nation. It's all about them. They are hostile to Christ, brothers, because they don't want to lose power. They don't want to lose control. That's why they will not believe in Jesus too, by the way. Because they will have to submit to someone, right? Someone they're going to have to confess is greater than themselves. These guys want control. They want power. And you see, when you think about society even today, times haven't changed. This is why ultimately, listen to me, this is why ultimately people don't want to come to Jesus. Because from their perspective, submitting to Jesus means loss of control. Loss of power, loss of something that they expect and that they think that they deserve. That's why they won't come to Jesus. They don't want someone else telling them what to do. They're concerned about losing influence with people, perhaps. You know, I've shared Christ with people who uh, who've sat in front of me and told me something along these lines. 
You know, ultimately, look, you've given me all of the arguments. At the end of the day, I don't want to follow after him because that means that I would have to submit my life to him and I cannot do fill in the blank. You've spoken to people like that? Family members, friends, neighbors, people that you love, people that you care about, people that you don't want to perish. I've spoken to, I've counseled um, married couples, including one guy one time when I was calling him to, to love his wife as Christ loves the church and he was having an affair and she was willing to forgive him and he wouldn't want, want to repent. And ultimately, what, you know what his answer was? I don't want to stay with her because that means that I'm going to have to follow after every single one of Jesus' rules. Seriously. See, at the heart and at the core of sin is our desire to be autonomous, our desire for power, our desire for control. We don't want to give that up. And so many people don't want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him because they don't want to have to answer to someone greater than their, their own God, little g, who is who? Themselves, right? Maybe there are people in your life right now saying things that are similar. But I want you to personalize this tonight. All right? Because, the, again, the question that this text um, asks of each of us sitting here tonight as we study this is, is this you tonight? Is this you? Is it loss of control, loss of power, loss of prestige, loss of influence, loss of a dream, loss of some kind of a goal that you've always had, something that you feel is your purpose in life? Is it one of those things that's holding you back from giving your life to King Jesus? Is that you tonight, my friend? Is that you? Are you like these people who, who love their autonomy, who love the fact that they didn't have to answer to God, at least from their perspective, even though ultimately every single one of us has to answer to God, right? Every single one of us. Listen, if that's you, you know what the Bible says to you? The Bible says, God is opposed to the proud. God stands in battle array like the ultimate warrior against the obstinate, against the autonomous, against the proud person who refuses to submit to him, who wants control and who wants power over their lives and doesn't want to submit to the Lord of the universe. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen to that. God's unmerited, undeserved blessing and favor is upon those who humble themselves, acknowledging their sin and rebellion, pleading for God's mercy and saying, Lord, I come to the cross of Christ bringing nothing but my sin. Please forgive me. Please reconcile me to yourself. Please grant me eternal life. I want to live for you. I want to love you. I want to walk in obedience out of a heart of gratitude for what you have done for me. That kind of a heart, that kind of heart of humility. Be not hostile tonight to the gospel. Be not ho hostile tonight, but humble yourself. Now watch this. Watch how this hostility further intensifies here. Their concern about Jesus provides the opportunity for wicked Caiaphas to now give his personal advice, right? Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas, by the way, ended up having quite the tenure as high priest he ruled from about AD 18, AD 18 through about AD 36. And this guy was the son-in-law of another high priest by the name of who? Annas. Annas, who ruled before him with a couple of years in there uh, with somebody else ruling. So this wicked family, think about it, 
had a lot of power for a long time, a lot of pool within the Sanhedrin, this particular family. Verse 49, Caiaphas, this powerful man, says to them, you know nothing at all, he says. Verse 50, nor do you understand. You know, in our vernacular today, what, that, what he's saying, you don't know what you guys are talking about. In fact, you guys are a bunch of ignoramuses, nor do you understand. What do they not understand here? Verse 50, that it is better for you, which means it's expedient. It is beneficial for you. What? That one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Oh, what a caring guy this guy Caiaphas, huh? <laughs> he really cares about the people. Look at what he's saying. He really cares about the nation, doesn't he? Of course he doesn't. He doesn't care about the nation or the people or even his, his comrades who he just spoke so condescendingly to, right? Listen, under the guise of being a great spiritual leader, a great advisor, advisor, Caiaphas is actually speaking prophetic words unbeknownst to him, right? Unbeknownst to him. You know what these words are? that he speaks here, they are language of sacrifice, language of Old Testament, language of substitution. They remind us of the, the infamous scapegoat of the Old Testament, that scapegoat upon whom the sins of the people would be placed, and then the scapegoat would run away into the wilderness along with the sins of the people. It's that kind of language right there that Caiaphas is speaking here prophetically. Under the guise of being a great uh, patriot, Caiaphas is saying it's better, more beneficial for you that Jesus should die than for our whole nation to perish. My question, was Caiaphas using the language of death and sacrifice in a, in a redemptive sense? What do you think? In a sacrificial, uh, in a Christian sense rather? Was he saying this in the best light? Of course not. Of course not. He's not speaking here of redemption. John tells us this in a few words, right? He clarifies in verse 51, if you notice there. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What's John saying? That even if Caiaphas... Caiaphas' intentions were wicked and self-serving. God is using Caiaphas to speak true words in the same way that God used a donkey in the Old Testament to speak true words, right? God can use anyone. And he's using a corrupt religious leader here who should have been more concerned about the spiritual well-being of the people. Instead, he is being self-serving, and it's all about his power and his influence. Furthermore, John the Evangelist comments this here because... Even if Caiaphas was prophesying this selfishly, the fact is Jesus did indeed die for sinners, didn't he? It's exactly what Jesus did. He died a substitutionary atoning death, a death in the place of sinners to pay for our punishment who have believed in him. Various passages tell us this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? By faith. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, Jesus himself, emphatically, 
bore our sins on the cross, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. The fact of the matter is, brothers, is that Jesus would die a substitutionary, redemptive type of death, that those who believe in him might be reconciled to God. And so Caiaphas may be given his his wicked advice here, his counsel with self-driven motives, simply to preserve power for himself and the wicked Sanhedrin, that religious uh, 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 group of of individuals at the expense of Jesus' life. But there's a lot of irony here, isn't there? There's a lot of irony here. And the irony is this, that by eliminating Jesus, they think that Jesus and his followers will simply go away and the exact opposite has happened, right? For 2,000 years, since the time of Christ. Equally ironic is the fact that Caiaphas and these wicked leaders are afraid of losing their nation. And listen, yet approximately 40 years later in AD 70, what happens to Israel? The Romans destroy Jerusalem, right? Lots of irony in this passage. Lots of irony. Well, here's the verdict then in verse 53. So, from that day on, from the day of Caiaphas' wicked advice, they made plans to put him to death. That is really significant, especially in light of where we are, where we are going, brothers. This is a turning point for you to underline here. Because within a few days, we're going to look at six different trials or or um, uh, uh, steps uh, leading to Jesus going to the cross. Three different trials that are Jewish trials and three different trials that are Roman trials, but those are simply a facade. They're a show. Because this official group of men have already indicted Jesus. They've already declared Jesus guilty, haven't they? He's guilty in their eyes. But think about the hatred. Think about the hostility of these men. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people. Maybe they even opened up this council when they met with a word of prayer. Right? By reading some scripture together. Spiritualizing the whole thing. Oh Lord, we're gathering together for the sake of your people. Right? All the while, they're deciding unjustly to put the Son of God to death on the cross. They give the air and appearance of high spirituality But in reality, they're false shepherds who are only about what they can take from the people rather than serving the people and giving back to the people. Now, as we see such hostility, even in our own time, brothers, think about this. It's easy to be equally taken back by such hostility in our day and age. And even to to become discouraged, to lose heart as we see the level of hatred and hostility to Jesus and to the truth, right? Perhaps even Jesus' disciples felt this way. And in fact, they did later on, days later, right? They, they, they're losing heart, especially as Jesus is going to the cross. And yet in the midst of all of this, let us not forget or in any way be dismayed as we read this, what's taking place here, because John's gospel has been telling us throughout that this is according to the sovereign plan of God. Amen? All of it is. My hour has not yet come right? His hour had not yet come. Over and over again, what John is telling us is nothing is going to happen unless Jesus sovereignly declares it to be so. It's going to be in his own timing by God's design. In fact, everything which happened to Jesus was by God's design and in his perfect timing. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says that at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, his death and the events leading to Jesus' death were all 
in God's timing. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, but when the fullness of the time had come, that's a, a way of saying when the exact precise moment had come that God had predetermined, right? God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Listen, those texts and many other texts, including those in the gospel of John, speak to the fact that Jesus is coming and Jesus' death for sinners was according to God's sovereign plan and according to his particular specific design. Amen? So in the end, these wicked leaders may have arrived at a hostile, hateful verdict, but it was all according to God's timetable. Amazing. Amazing. All of this to say that we should expect hostility to the gospel, but never forget, brother in Christ, that nothing happens outside of God's timing and God's design in the midst of that hostility, right? Third, third, as we follow in the footsteps of our Lord, what should strengthen us as we fulfill Jesus' mission in the midst of opposition and persecution? Third and finally, be strengthened by the resolve of Christ. We've made this point before, but I think it's worth making it again. Be strengthened in your own mission for the sake of Christ by the resolve of Christ. These verses, verses 54 to 57, almost, almost at first glance seem as if Jesus is retreating once again, right? But that's not the case. We see Jesus' resolve here in his preparation for his death. Notice this. In light of the verdict by the Jewish Sanhedrin, verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. This would have been most likely the Judean wilderness to a place called Ephraim, about 12 miles or so roughly, approximately from Jerusalem. But what does Je why does Jesus do this? Why does he seemingly retreat? Is it because, you know, he's, he's afraid? He's had enough? Because Jesus has had it? He's weary of this whole thing? Of course not. He's in preparation mode now, isn't he? He's in preparation mode. His public ministry is ending, and it's now the beginning of his passion, as we're going to see, beginning in chapter 12, with him being prepared for burial, for his death. And so Jesus is not retreating here. He's preparing himself and his disciples for what's to come. And also notice Jesus' resolve here in that his death will happen in his exact timing once again because it's none other than what part of the year? Passover, right? The famous Jewish Passover. John highlights this. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Listen, Jesus in his, in his perfect timing is going to go to the cross with maximum, maximum publicity now, right? Where everybody has no excuse. They're going to know that he's going to go to the cross. Because days before the Passover, people would arrive in the thousands in order to undergo the necessary rituals and purification uh, rites required to, to take this Passover meal. Yet all these people coming in to witness what's about to happen, the Passover lamb of the world, brothers, will now die during the exact feast which will now commemorate his death forevermore. Think about that. He will die as he planned during Passover when thousands of pilgrims are going to pour in from all over Palestine, from all over the land. And so this is a strategic time 
bringing maximum publicity. The atmosphere is, during Passover was quite busy. It was electric. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of excitement. And who do you think is the talk of the town? It's none other than Jesus. Many have been exposed to his ministry. They've heard of him. Others have just witnessed the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, right? Everything is now reaching its culmination. Look at verse 56. They were looking for Jesus. Many are looking for Jesus here, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not, that he will not come to the feast at all? Why are they asking this? Because Jesus has become a polarizing figure, a most controversial figure. And most people are aware of the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders to the point where, look at verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might, what? Arrest him. Circulating already was the fact that the Sanhedrin had decided against Jesus. Many people know this. Many are conflicted as they're being told to report about or to report Jesus as soon as they see him. There's a lot of people who are confused. There are a lot of people who are wondering what's going to happen. So much opposition, so much hostility. But what I want you to take note of is this. In all of this, far from retreating or shying away from his mission, Jesus is resolved to do just that, to fulfill his mission. Amen? For you and I who have trusted in him. He goes into prep mode now for his passion for his suffering and his death is soon to come. And picture the first century readers reading the Gospel of John. Picture them reading this, primarily non-believers, but also Christians who are now experiencing, reading this account, they're experiencing opposition and all of that. And now they're reading about the fact that their Lord Jesus was so resolved as they seek now to be salt and light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And brothers, as we see, even in our day and age, the hostility that is, that is taking place against the truth and against the gospel. But we read about our Lord Jesus Christ and his resolve to go to the cross for sinners to the glory of his Father. May we be strengthened as well. Amen? May we find strength in the resolve of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love Hebrews chapter 12 in closing, which reminds us of this as we run the Christian race, to be looking to Jesus, to be strengthened by him, the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he says, consider him, believer, in the midst of hostility and opposition and all of that, as you fulfill your mission, consider him, Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not re yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He did, right? All the way to the end, shedding his blood for our sins. May we be strengthened, brothers, as we fulfill our mission by the resolve of our Lord Jesus Christ, who because the glory of his Father and love for sinners such as us, finished the race. Amen? He is the perfecter and the founder and the trailblazer of our own faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful reminder tonight 
that we do face much opposition and hostility, but nothing in comparison to what our Lord faced during his lifetime. Thank you for his great love for us. Thank you for the fact that he did it all for your glory, that you would be glorified, that you would be made much of. Lord, we pray that as we continue in our mission here in this world, Lord, every single one of us is breathing in this moment because you are allowing that to happen. And that means that you have a mission for us to accomplish here. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here anymore. And we understand that we can certainly worship you more perfectly and more wholeheartedly and, and all of that in heaven. But you have us here to accomplish a particular mission, and that is that we would be salt and light. Help us to follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus in all that we do as we proclaim the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.